welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. God, may the reality of the resurrection break in to our hearts and our minds that we too might be made new and fresh by the power of our Lord and Savior's resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So I always love movies that that have like an unexpected plot twist at the end of the movie. One of, one of my favorite movies is is a classic from 1973. It's called The Sting with uh, starring Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford. Now, it, to give you a warning, like as a spoiler alert, uh, I am going to to tell you the end. But on the other hand, the movie was from 1973, so if you haven't seen it yet, then you probably don't care. Um, but but in, in the movie, you have Paul Newman and Robert Redford's characters, they're, they're con artists, and they're working on what, what they call the long con. They're, they're, they're setting up a con to, to, to hustle a mob boss. And what they do is they, they set up a fake betting parlor and, and they convince the, the mob boss, uh, Redford's character convinces the mob boss that, that he is in on a con on the betting parlor. But he needs a financial backer to place a bet on a horse because he has an inn where he gets the results of the races before the results are posted. And so they get the mob boss to put down $500,000, and the movie is set in 1930, so a large amount of money on this sure thing. And it seems like everything is coming together exactly as they planned, but then all of a sudden, Redford's character gets blackmailed by the feds to turn over Newman's character. And in what is the closing scene, when the bet is being made, the feds bust in. And Newman's character realizes that Redford's character had betrayed him. So Newman pulls out a gun and shoots Redford's character. And then the feds turn and shoot Newman's character. And the thugs that are with the mob boss quickly race him out of the betting parlor. And it seemed like everything was lost. Their plans were thwarted. It was a tragedy. But once the mob boss was gone, Robert Redford opens his eyes, smiles, and starts laughing. And they both stand up and hug each other. And then the, the FBI agent comes over, starts laughing, and hugs him. And you realize that the FBI agent wasn't actually an FBI agent, he was also a con artist who was in on the long con. 
See, what seemed to be a tragic end was actually planned the whole time. What was a tragedy was actually the means of achieving their goal, their greatest heist. I love these type of movies. I love Ocean's Eleven, which follows from the same tradition of of this thing in which they're planning a great heist of a casino and it looks like everything fell apart until you find out in the end that that's what they planned. Or the influential angsty Gen X movie Fight Club where at the very end of the movie you realize that the two main characters are just the split personalities of the same guy. Or the... uh, Influential Sixth Sense, the I See Dead People movie, in which you have a child psychologist who is working with this little kid who claims that he can see dead people. And then at the very end, the psychologist finds out that he's actually dead. What I, what I love about these plot twist movies or stories is that after... This shocking twist at the end, it, it forces you then to go back and look at the whole movie again. And you begin to see things in the movie or in the story that you didn't see at first. And the things that you did see, now you see differently. And for the first disciples, the resurrection of Jesus would have had the same effect on them. And so, on this celebration of the resurrection of our Lord, I want to look at the shocking and unexpected empty tomb and how the resurrection reorients our perspective on everything. But first, we must address what the resurrection is. And I want to do that by first noting what it is not. Common misconceptions about the resurrection that are bantered around frequently today. Resurrection is not synonymous with life after death. As is used often in funerals and sermons and books. There was a word for that and a concept of that, but it wasn't resurrection. It wasn't just that one after they die Go to heaven. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Lazarus was brought back from the dead. The widow of Nain's only child was brought out of the cassock. A cassock. No. Out of the casket. Um, he wasn't wearing a cassock. He was an Anglican. Um, <clears throat> In the Old Testament, the widow's son that was brought back to life by Elijah. They were brought back to life, but when that happened, nobody claimed resurrection was happening. And every single one of them, though they were brought back to life, grew old and died again. They were resuscitated, and it was a grand miracle, a miracle that kind of alludes to and points to resurrection But that was not resurrection. 
Resurrection, in the Greek word that we translate resurrection, anastasis, means a physical, bodily rising up from the grave. And it's not coming back from death, but actually passing through death and coming out the other side. It's not just coming to life, but it's the reversal of death itself. The destruction of its stronghold on all of us. For the Jews, the idea or concept of resurrection was was understood to be a, a final and complete bodily rising from the dead that somehow transforms the body of decay into a body that will no longer see death. And this idea of resurrection was expected by no one. Especially the idea of resurrection of a single individual in the middle of history. Resurrection was foolish to the Greeks and Romans. It was dumb, idiotic. For the Greek and Roman people, many of them denied the afterlife altogether. Popular group that, a notable group that, that held that once death happened, it was over, was the Epicureans. But those who did have some type of view of the afterlife, they viewed it as, as a disembodied semblance of life in a, a in, in shadowy realm of Hades. Or they had a platonic view of this, of death being a liberation from the shackles of physicality. They would have actually saw resurrection as something that is not desirable. Because their hope was that we would be freed from these shackles of carbon-based life in the physical world. In the 200s BC, there's a famous Greek tragedy, Greek play. And within the play, it writes, What is it like down there? Asks a man of his departed friend. Very dark, comes the reply. Is there any way back up? It's a lie. They weren't looking for resurrection. We see in Acts when Paul preached to the Greek intellectuals of the day in the Areopagus. They were listening intently, but then it notes that when he began to speak about the resurrection of the dead, they mocked him. It was ridiculous to the Romans and to the Greeks. For the Jews, some passionately denied the resurrection. Famously, that was the Sadducees that did so. But many, many did accept this doctrine of resurrection, but they believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age. They believed that whenever this age, this time period came to an end, that all who had fallen asleep would be raised by God so that he could execute justice and judgment. But no one believed that a single individual would be resurrected in the middle of history. 
And especially, nobody was looking for a resurrected Messiah because no one expected a Messiah that was going to die. We had, before and after the time of Christ, there were numerous messianic movements. And often, the leader of that movement faced a horrible death. You know what happened after that leader faced death? They either disbanded and the movement died, or they appointed a new messianic leader. And we see with the disciples, they weren't looking for a dead and raised Messiah. That's why at the acclamation from the women that Jesus was raised, they were in disbelief. Can it be so? doesn't make sense. This is not supposed to happen. But when you look at this, what is interesting is that to try to make up for the fact that they had given their entire life to following this messianic figure, Jesus, there would have been many responses to his death. But one of the responses that was certainly not going to happen is to make up a ridiculous idea that somehow he raised from the dead in the middle of history. Nobody would believe that. Nobody expected that. Nobody was looking for that. But using the principle of Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is often the right explanation. And the only simple explanation for the fact that after the death of Jesus, now the disciples did not disband or find a new messianic figure, but began proclaiming that Jesus has raised from the dead is because he actually did. And when they faced this very unexpected, shocking reality of their resurrected Lord, physically, bodily before them, that they could touch his wounds and eat fish with him, they began to realize what it meant. First, they realized that the resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus was vindicated as king and Messiah. Remember, he was killed as a false Messiah, making false claims to be king. And if he remained dead, then those who killed him would be validated. But the resurrection made them realize That Jesus was not some nut job with a messianic complex. And he wasn't a con artist working on a long con that went bad for him. But he was who he claimed to be. It also meant that the promises were being fulfilled. After the crucifixion, many who had followed put their hopes in Jesus were leaving home crushed, muttering to themselves, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But the resurrection revealed that those dashed hopes are no longer crushed, but bolstered. And that they now have certainty that the promises of God, the promises that were given through the covenant with Abraham, the promises that were spoken through the prophets of old, the promises of God's redemption and his restoration of Israel and all nations was coming to fulfillment. 
And similarly, his resurrection meant that the hope for eternal kingdom of God was going to be established on earth. And they also realized that the resurrection of Jesus was actually the first fruits of new creation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For by a man, Christ comes the resurrection of the dead. If by faith we who are united to him, that his death takes the place of our death, means that we also will receive a physical, tangible resurrection just as Christ has. And it also means that God had not abandoned his project. Also in 1 Corinthians, Paul interestingly connects, the, connects Jesus' physical bodily resurrection to the renewal of all of creation itself. That God was, was, was raising atoms and genes, carbon and water, the physical realities that he had created. And this is important to remember because the gospel is not God's plan B. It's not that God created all of the world good and then Satan entered in and convinced us to fall. And then God saying, oh, well, you know, at least he well, he did destroy everything I created good. I'll give him that. But as a consolation prize, I'll steal a few souls for myself. No, our Lord is victorious to the end and completely. And the devil had got nothing from him. He's redeeming and restoring all that was good. And making it good once again. And I want to just note that far too many Christians today. In our proclamation of the resurrection. And trying in, 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 our, in, our, in our evangelistic tracts. And how we share the gospel. Are sadly too often actually perpetuating an ancient heresy. That Christ is risen. So when you die, your spirit goes to heaven. And we spend eternity as disembodied spirits with God. That is actually not Christianity. That's a form of Platonism. And Paul, in his famous resurrection discussion in 1 Corinthians 15 interestingly says to the Corinthians, if they deny the physical, their physical resurrection as their ultimate hope, then they also deny Christ's resurrection. And it says that if Christ is not raised, if you hold to that view of a platonic disembodied existence in which God allows all of his good creation to fall apart and to cease. And he says, all of this is in vain. All of this. Y'all wasted your time coming out here. 
Our faith is meaningless and we have no hope. And he says that we are, should be pitied amongst all people. If Christ be not physically raised, then I am spewing lies to all of you. I'm a joke. Somebody who is just lying to people, gallivanting around in medieval dresses, like a fool. And so when they see the resurrected Lord and they begin to realize what it means when they're confronted by this unexpected reality, it transformed how they understood everything. And similarly, it also transformed how we understand everything. It changed how they understood God's story. Like Sixth Sense and Fight Club. After the resurrection, they went back to the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. We see the couple on Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, encountering the resurrected Lord, and he opened their eyes and went back through the entire story of God, and then they realized in that that it was actually all about him. The apostles went back to the scriptures after encountering the resurrected Lord. And then all of a sudden, these scriptures that they themselves knew from childhood, these scriptures that they had read and never saw pointing towards a killed and resurrected Messiah, all of a sudden, now as they go back, they notice thing after thing after thing and realize that everything in that story was actually pointing to Christ. His atoning death and his victorious resurrection. You see how they do that by reading what we call our New Testament. As they search through the scriptures and in light of the resurrection, see Jesus everywhere. And it reoriented their perspective on the cross. Before the resurrection, the cross was a horrible tragedy. It was the end of all hope. It was crushing. It was a disastrous failure. But then after the resurrection, they looked back and now saw the cross as the greatest triumph. As the orchestrated means of a greater redemption than they had ever dreamed. And if you think about it, it's only in light of the resurrection that one would begin to use the cross as a central symbol of faith. This has become normal to us, but it's really, really odd. Without the resurrection, what weirdos would start taking the disastrous, humiliating means of their leader's death and then begin walking around with it and using it as the means to mark them? You would never do that. But in light of the resurrection, the cross took on new meaning. 
The cross was not the end of the story, but was actually the beginning of a greater story that they had never even anticipated. That was grander than they had ever hoped for. And it changes how we view our story and live it out. It changes fear to boldness. During Jesus' rest and after his crucifixion, we see that the, the disciples were not bold world changers. They were scared to death. Denying that they know him because of fear of the people. Going and locking themselves in a house out of fear. And yet after the resurrection, encountering the risen Lord, this band of misfits and losers, redneck fishermen and outcasts from society, went out and changed the known world. And they did so proclaiming the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, facing persecution, And being followed by the threat of death all along the way. They're able to do this because they knew that in the resurrection that we are united to Christ by faith. Which means that his death canceled our sins. And his resurrection defeated the greatest enemy. The true death. Separation from God because of our sins. What is Christ's is now ours. And St. Paul says in a letter to Romans, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's why then can be claimed, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? As Christians, my brothers and sisters, we do not celebrate death. For Scripture calls it an enemy. We abhor it, but we no longer fear it. Death has lost its fangs. And so death no longer has the last word and no longer controls us. Provides us a new vision of greatness. Christ's resurrection, his glory Came, way, came by the way of humility and humiliation on the cross. It's interesting, if you read just before the crucifixion, St. Luke notes that a fight broke out among the disciples, arguing over who was going to be the greatest, pandering for position of significance, These disciples that were constantly trying to position themselves to be in a place of greatness and significance after the resurrection showed great humility, enduring ridicule, poverty, humiliation. And when they wrote and when they taught, they told the early Christians to live in humility like Christ was humble, that none are greater than the other. What's interesting because of their willingness to associate with the outcast, the lowly, the untouchables. They were mocked and ridiculed. You can read early writings from Roman historians and writers, and they laughed at the Christians because they were idiots. 
They were a bunch of poor peasants. And even if they weren't, they gave away their money to help out these poor peasants. They lost their position and status in society. But in light of the resurrection, we no longer need to prove or achieve greatness as defined by the zeitgeist of the day. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of all who are in him. Makes certain that we too will enjoy a resurrection like his. That we will receive honor, glory, greatness, if you want to call it, that far surpasses any facade of notoriety, significance, social standing, success, fame, power, that we can receive from our peers because we've already received from our Lord a glory and a greatness that none of that could ever compare. It provides us new lenses through which to view the significance of our life. Paul, after that long explanation in 1 Corinthians 15 about the physical resurrection and its centrality of Jesus and our share in that resurrection, he closes that that discussion on resurrection in a very odd way. In 1558, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, because God has not abandoned his project, what we do here and now, in our own physical world, has eternal significance. The resurrection does not mean that then we just look to a future and ignore the now, but it means that the now has a future and it matters. I like a quote that is attributed to Luther. Of course, no one knows if he actually said it or not. Um, It doesn't matter, I like it. It says, if, if I knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. Because God has not abandoned his project. Can you imagine how glorious that apple tree will look after God establishes kingdom and makes things all perfect and new again? And it gives us a new perspective on suffering and disappointment. First disciples were crushed by seeing Jesus suffer. They thought God had abandoned them. They had lost everything. But after the resurrection, they saw it as a glorious victory, one that was done on our behalf. We all will face moments in which we feel that God's promises have failed. That God has abandoned us. Remember, we are united to Christ. He's the one on the cross that cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we're able to see the cross in a new light because of the resurrection. And we can be certain that God brings about redemption and restoration even through suffering 
or what appears at the moment to be a tragedy. Because of Jesus' atoning and substitutionary death on the cross and victorious resurrection, we can approach layoffs. We can approach cancer prognosis. We can approach sudden and unexpected death of family members. We can approach ridicule and broken relationships. We can approach all of the pain and the destruction and what seems like the world is falling apart around us. We can see that not as something good, but it is as something that in the hands of God, that through the, the, the reality of the resurrection, We can see those things with knowing with certainty that glorious good will be brought through what was an apparent tragedy or disappointment. Our faith is rooted in the resurrection. It literally lives or dies on this physical, tangible, historic event. And the Christian life in many ways is a growing reorientation around this resurrection reality. It's like spiritual Lasix in which our vision is being changed by the cross and the empty tomb. And if you notice the heart of Christian practice throughout the centuries is repetition. Every Sunday. Because every Sunday, in many ways, is a mini Holy Week each week. We join into Palm Sunday as we sing the Sanctus. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. As we join the voices ushering him in to Jerusalem, singing Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We join Monday, Thursday, as we celebrate most Sundays, the Eucharist, joining to that last supper in the upper room with Jesus. Every Sunday, we remember Good Friday through the words proclaimed and the words prayed. And in the Eucharistic meal, Because we are reminded over and over again of Christ's atoning and substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. And this all happens on Sunday. It's odd. A bunch of Jews. They didn't worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. They worshiped on Sunday. Because Sunday was the day that Jesus was risen. Every Sunday is a mini Easter. Every Sunday we gather together so that through this repetitive reenactment of Christ's glorious resurrection that we begin to see every facet of our reality through resurrection eyes. I want to conclude with a portion of a homily preached by St. John Chrysostom. It's called the Golden Mouth. Apparently, he was a good preacher. I wouldn't mind having that nickname. Um, 
<laughs> at least like bronze mouth. Like, yeah, I mean, like, at least if I could have like a semi-precious metal. Just throwing it out there. I mean, y'all, y'all could call me what you want, but I'm just like, hint. Um, but it's a famous, his, his, his Paschal homily in many Eastern churches, this homily is read every Easter. He was the bishop, Archbishop of Constantinople, and he preached this sometime in the late 300s. I think it speaks well to this new resurrection perspective. He says, enjoy ye all the feast of faith. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry. Hell, said he, was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was balked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ being risen from the dead is become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Christ our Lord and Savior is risen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org.